The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 5 that we'd read just a moment ago. A few weeks ago, at the beginning of the government's social distancing order, sent a text to our son Nathan, who lives in the Washington, D.C. area, and I asked him how he was doing staying at home and being in confinement, and he replied with a simple one-liner. He said, Dad, I've been training all of my life for this. Well, I caught his meaning very quickly because Nathan is always been a loner. He was content to be in his room alone with video games and electronic devices, and he really didn't care very much for physical social interaction. And it was no surprise when he went into the Navy for six years that he was okay, except when he had to deploy on a ship for seven months. On a ship, there is no privacy. There is no place to find privacy and to be alone because sailors bunk together, they eat together, they work together, they recreate together. There just isn't a place to get away. I mean, even taking a shower, they're separated only by a thin shower curtain. So 24 hours every day, 3,000 sailors on his ship were together. Now, this, of course, is the reason there's been such a scare. This togetherness has caused such a scare that our Navy will be overcome with the coronavirus and they won't be ready as one of our first lines of defense if an enemy attack. It's also the reason there was such a stir when the captain of the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt was fired because he reported conditions on his ship and that leaked to the press. Now, I don't know what you think of all of that, but I can warn you that sentimentality over it is dangerous. It's dangerous for our enemies to have a heads up that our warships are crippled. But that be as it may, Nathan is doing just fine being alone, and that training has served him well. Well, since he's been alone, he's had more time to talk with me. So a few days ago, he called me to ask for advice. And without getting into all that he was questioning, he said, Dad, do you remember a sermon that you preached about peacemakers. And I confessed, I didn't remember. I know that I hadn't preached it recently, but he remembered this sermon. And he said, I remember things like that because when I am, I'm in certain situation, it triggers my memory. So I had to think about it. And then I remembered, yes, I did preach a sermon about this because it was in the Beatitudes. That's in Matthew chapter 5. And I, I preached a message about it uh, about 11 years ago. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, that sermon was 11 years ago, and I, I don't know how that he remembered it, but he did. But that started me to thinking about the Beatitudes and how there were some really great lessons for Christians about what life is like in the kingdom of God and how that Christians must be changed from conventional thinking and quite Frankly, most of the Beatitudes aren't understood very well because they are unconventional. But because those lessons are so good and it's been so long since we've talked about them, I decided that I would go back and look at these again 
And since we're sheltered in place and can't go to church, maybe what I'll do is just start a little, a little mini-series on the Beatitudes. Now, I want you to go then to Matthew chapter 5 once again, where we were reading uh, just a moment ago. And uh, we want to look at, at, at these uh, Beatitudes. We're going to read through this again. Uh, and I want to deal today with the first one in verse number 3. I'm going to start reading in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter 5, which says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, that's Jesus, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let me read a similar statement in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now before we get into the heart of the message, I, I'd like to call this sermon a companion to last week's message. It's not really a part number two of that message because it's not exactly about living by faith, but it does contain some of the same thematic elements. And I think the first thing that comes to mind about being poor in spirit is that Jesus appeared to tell his disciples that it's best for, for Christians to be impoverished. That it's best for us not to accumulate, and it's not intended for us to have very much of the world's wealth, not much of what the world has to offer. The attitude comes from the beginning of each of these statements in which Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are the meek. And you can go down that list and there are nine times that Jesus said blessed. So what beatitude means, it means blessed, and blessing, or the blessed, refers to happiness. But it sure doesn't match our idea of happiness to say that we're blessed if we are poor. I know that some of you, if not all of you, are very concerned that if this virus doesn't go away soon, that our economy will be ruined by this shutdown. You might not have a job. You don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You're headed for poverty, and there's no way that you think that poverty is a blessing. And that just happens to be the most common misinterpretation of the first beatitude. For centuries, Roman Catholicism taught that Jesus is speaking of material poverty, and accordingly, their monks and their nuns and others would often take vows of poverty because they believed that poverty was the path to holiness. Poverty is the way to acceptance with God. And this much is true, that often material wealth is a distraction from spiritual principles. Material goods are often accompanied with many temptations. And then to add on top of this, you remember that Jesus told the rich young ruler that he must sell everything that he had and give it to the poor. And of course, if he gave it all away, he himself would be poor. And then Jesus said, you can follow me and you can be my disciple. And then Jesus went even further. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, these scriptures and bad interpretations of them have led people to believe that poverty is the way that Christians should live and that Jesus does not want his people to have material goods. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this and to explain all those other scriptures, but I will say that if every Christian took a vow of poverty, 
We wouldn't have this building that we have. We wouldn't be able to meet here when, when the time comes that we can. We wouldn't be able to evangelize in this area because none of us would be able to afford to live here. All of us would be homeless. We'd be living on the streets. We couldn't support our missionaries. We would have very little in the ways of tithes and offerings. And if Jesus said, I want all of you to be poor, what he would do is just shut down the gospel from reaching the world. And we know that Jesus would never be so foolish that he would contradict his plan of finance for the church. Paul took offerings to help churches, to help people in other churches that were suffering in poverty. Sometimes times those offerings would be taken from poor people and poor people were helping poor people and the churches gave sacrificially. But then at other times there were wealthy Christians that could give more and that would increase the level of support for the cause of the gospel. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. But the big question is how? That does not match what we would call happiness. Now it's important for us to note that happiness in Scripture is not what the world thinks of happiness. Our world word happiness uh, comes from a word that means fortunate. Happiness is when chances work out in our favor. Happiness is when everything falls into place and we are fortunate to have more than others. That's not the Bible's meaning of happiness. Happiness in Scripture is a supernatural experience. And this is when, in our spiritual being, we know that our lives are right with God. When we're walking with God and when we're in the center of His will, there's this euphoria, there's this satisfaction that envelops us because we have the mind of Christ and we're like Him. It doesn't have anything at all to do with our material wealth. The abundance of wealth or the lack of it is not what drives our contentment. Paul said to be content in whatever state that we are. And we can be content in the middle of being shut up in our houses if we're walking with God and our hearts are right with Him. Nobody understands that but Christians. The world will never find contentment in these Beatitudes because these are made for life in God's kingdom. Only those who have repented of their sins, those that are born again and trusted Jesus Christ can experience contented life in the kingdom of God. And so in these Beatitudes, Jesus turned conventional thinking upside down. His principles don't match the world's kingdoms. His standards are different and his way to happiness is different. And you can't think this way. It's not possible to think this way if you're not walking in the same direction as Jesus Christ. The world can be crumbling all around us and it makes no difference because our minds are not fixed on the things of this world. Jesus is not speaking of material poverty. And you can see that by investigating the meaning of this word poor. This is a word that means destitute. It's a word that means to have nothing. A word that means to be a beggar and to be completely dependent on the help of others. And Jesus was not poor in that sense. The disciples were not poor in that sense. Jesus never begged for food. He was never destitute. The disciples never begged. Paul never begged. Remember, he made tents for his living. He supplied his own support in the many places where he preached. 
Jesus is not speaking here of taking a vow of poverty. But instead he speaks of a different type of poverty. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what did he mean by that? What does he mean, poor in spirit? Well, here he's speaking of pride. He's speaking of that deadly sin of pride. And he's telling us that the blessed person is one who has been stripped of all of his pride. The person who is blessed does not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And I can tell you that this cut to the heart of the problem why people don't come to Jesus in repentance and faith. They don't come because they believe they are spiritually better than they truly are. They see themselves much differently than God sees them. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit that is a prideful spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 12, Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, it's prideful, and before honor is humility. And there we find the opposite of pride. What is the opposite of pride? Well, its opposite is humility. To be blessed, you can't be prideful. You must be humble. You must be like that publican who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote on his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this is what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk about humility. Humility will help us to understand this beatitude. And I'd like to show you two important factors about it. The first is the requirements of humility. And the second is the recognition of humility. So first, let, let's take a, a, a few minutes to talk about the requirements of humility. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are absolutely nothing without God. If you don't have Jesus, you are helpless. You are destitute. You are absent of any spiritual good. Does it really matter if you have a big bank account? Does it matter if you have a degree from Stanford? It doesn't matter if you've climbed the social scale and you've become the envy of all of your neighbors. Spiritually, you have nothing that God recognizes. He's not impressed with all the worldly things that you've gained because he's rich beyond measure. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Your riches don't mean anything to him. They don't count to him. He's the all-wise, almighty, omniscient creator. So your education doesn't compare. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. You don't impress him by how much you know. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And so your social standing makes you nothing in God's eyes but the lowest serf. Nothing that you are in the physical realm means anything to him. And then in the spiritual realm, you fare even worse. Why? Well, because the Bible says that you are dead in trespasses and sin. It says that you are deceitfully wicked, that your heart is as black as hell itself. The Bible says you are unrighteous, and the only thing that counts with God is perfect righteousness. You are dead. Things that are dead have no value. When the executive of a huge corporation dies, they don't keep paying him. He's dead, so he has no value to the company. Cowboys don't sit on dead horses. You don't keep a dead watchdog. Things that are dead have no value. And in God's eyes, you are spiritually dead, and so you are of no value in his kingdom. Oh, but that's not what you hear preached in most churches. 
No, the perfect setup for the preacher in most churches is to tell people how valuable they are. You're awesome. You are so awesome. You are so great. And preachers are just well-liked if they just stroke the congregation and build their self-esteem. And that's what today's preaching is mostly about. It's about self-esteem and how God wants you to think so well of yourself that God wants you to take pride in all of your accomplishments. And I'm telling you that Jesus said you need to forsake all of that. And you might not like me telling you this truth, but when it comes to your self-worth and your pride in who you are and what you've accomplished, and when it comes to what you feel about yourself and about your good deeds and about your best efforts to be righteous with God, you must realize it counts for nothing. That you are beggarly poor, that you are bankrupt, that you are destitute, and until you realize that you are completely helpless with no chance, with no way to be right with God on your own, you won't be blessed. And you won't be happy in God's kingdom. Because until then, you're not a part of God's kingdom. And you see why this is paradoxical? We are prideful people. We're all prideful people. We love to toot our horn. We love to talk about us. And every conversation we're thinking, well, that's not enough uh, talking about you. Let's just, let's just talk about me. Pride has no place in Christ's kingdom. And so we see here that Jesus put humility at the top of his list because you can't come into Christ's kingdom and be in competition with him. You're nothing, he's everything. And until you realize it, you won't be a Christian and you can't be a happy Christian. Humility comes first. Again, Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Christ does not want you to fall. And so here, at the beginning, he eliminates pride. So how do you become humble? What does it take to be humble? Well, let me give you four ways to humility. Four ways to humility. The first is, you must be empty to be filled. Now, if you remember, this was a part of last week's message. We talked about ridding our spiritual house of self. You can't be full of Christ and be full of you. If I have a glass of water and the glass is filled to the top, how am I going to get more into that glass? If the glass is full of water, how will I pour orange juice on top of it? The glass won't hold it. If you're full of yourself, you can't be filled with Christ now, since you're confined to the house in this pandemic, perhaps you might want to find something to read that'll help you feel better. Well, you can go on Amazon and you can find all sorts of self-help books that claim that they can make you a better you. But how many of those books will tell you that the best way that you can help yourself is to get rid of yourself? Oh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a book like that. You're not going to find too many books about self-denial. You'll find many about self-indulgence. You'll find books about pampering yourself, but not about self-denial. Jesus was not a self-help guru. He said, you can't help yourself. He said, you must deny yourself. You must get rid of yourself. To be humble, you've got to start by refusing self. You must be selfless, not self-more. So the key to this beatitude is being self-bankrupt. You can't be filled with you and be filled with Christ. Now secondly, how do you become humble? How are you humble? Well, number two is that you must stoop 
to stand. Now sometimes I'm glad that I'm short. Someone has said that the door to Christ's kingdom is low. You can't stand tall and go through the king's door. You can't stretch your neck and hold up your head and keep your nose up. Keep a, your head above everybody and say, hey, just, just look at me. You know, Jesus might have said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a tall person to get into heaven. Now, I know the Andrews family is probably listening to this, so I best explain that statement. When we were in Israel... Uh, we visited the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And there's an interesting door into the church. There is this huge plaza in front of the church. But the entrance of the church is not very impressive. It's just a very small door. In fact, as you approach that door, you've got to bend, you've got to crouch to get inside. And the reason the door was made that way was because Muslim invaders would ride their horses into the churches. And as they rode in, they would tear things up. And so to prevent that, the doors of the churches were made very small, so the rider would need to get off of his horse. He would need to stoop to get in. He couldn't ride his horse in. And I just saw a great application in that. You ever heard of someone riding his high horse? Well, there are a lot of Christians that are riding high horses. I like something that Arthur Pink did that showed true humility. He was a brilliant theologian. But did you know that he refused to be called Dr. Pink? He thought carrying that title was prideful. I was talking to a friend uh, several years ago, and he was telling me about attending a Bible conference, in fact, one that many of you would know about. And he went to the Bible conference, and he said, every other person that came up to me introduced himself as Dr. So-and-so. And he said, there were so many doctors, I sure wasn't afraid of getting sick. Well, Jesus said something interesting about that kind of pride. He was speaking of the proud Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said in Matthew 23, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men. Rabbi, Rabbi, be ye not called Rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ, and ye are all brethren. Oh, there are lots of prideful preachers and pastors. Jesus said, one is your rabbi, one is your doctor, one is your teacher, even Christ, and ye are all brethren. I think there are some that need to learn that the ministry is not the separation of the clergy and the laity, but rather we are all brethren I would rather co-labor with you than to be your master. I don't want to be the Lord of the church. I don't want to be the boss of the church. You must be empty to be filled. You must stoop to stand. Those are unconventional ideas, aren't they? What else is this about? Well, thirdly, if you want to be humble, you must die to live. Is that a worldly concept? Billboards and... Advertisements speak of living it up. Beer commercials tell you you only go around once in life. You need to party hard, party on. On TV, they used to have a, a program that was called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And people would watch that and they would say, man, that is really living. That's what living is all about. But did you know the Bible says that you can be dead while you live? A person without Christ is physically alive, but spiritually dead. 
And the Bible also tells us that there's a sense in which this can be true of a Christian, that we can be dead to the sensitivity of what it truly means to be happy. In 1 Timothy, Paul spoke of helping widows in the church. And he said, well, there are some of these widows you just can't help. There's some of them that live in pleasure. They don't care about others. This is the statement he makes in 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Now there he's speaking of a backslidden Christian. If I am be, to be humble, he's saying I must die to myself, I must live unto God. And living unto God shows itself by living unto my brother. I mean, how else would you show the character of God? How else would you show who God is except by the way that you treat others? And so the widow or any person that lives only for self and not for others is the person that is dead while they live. Now, I'm thankful that during this pandemic, we'd have members, we've had members of Berean Baptist Church that are looking out for each other. They, they are Christians that live. Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife, or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's the paradox. In order to live, I must die. Jesus said, we must take up our cross daily and follow him. And what is a cross? Well, a cross is an instrument of death. And if I take up my cross, that means I must be willing to die to myself. Paul taught the same principle as he explained in Galatians 2 verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified. I have died. And yet I live because Christ is in me. And you see how this continually emphasizes that to dwell happily in Christ's kingdom, I must come to the place that I am beggarly poor, that I recognize nothing in me. I am bankrupt. I'm dead. Without Christ, I'm nothing. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. I can sum up this point uh, with this, and it's paradoxically unconventional. You must be poor to be rich. The first the attitude is about spiritual poverty. Pride goes before destruction. Humility goes before blessing. Humility is first. And so if I want to count myself rich, it will never be because of the accumulation of this world's riches. My wealth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. If I'm to be counted rich, it's because I own Christ. It's because I have His treasures laid up in heaven. My worth is not in me. My worth is in Him. And that's what makes me valuable to God. In the Revelation, there was a church that boasted of what they owned. They were horribly complacent and they were despicable in Christ's eyes. This is the church at Laodicea. They said, we are rich. We are increased with goods. We have need of nothing. And Jesus said, you don't know that you have nothing. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Humility is required. 
Jesus puts that right at the top of the list. And until you get this right, until you back off self and build up Christ, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there I've given you four ways to become humble. Now I want to show you how you recognize when you truly are. So number two is the recognition of humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a great illustration of recognizing humility in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And he speaks of a, of a man named Uriah Heep. Let me read his comment. He says, I remember having to go preach at a certain town. When I arrived on the Saturday evening, a man met me at the station and immediately asked for my bag. Indeed, he almost took it from my hand by force. Then he talked to me like this. I am a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow, he said. And then added, you know, I'm a mere nobody, a very unimportant man, really. I don't count. Now, by that he meant I'm not one of those who counts the money in the church. I don't count. I'm not a great man in the church. I'm just one of those who carries the bag for the minister. He was anxious that I should know what a humble man he was. How poor in spirit. Yet by his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing that he was trying to establish. Uriah Heep, the man who thus, as it were, glories in poverty of spirit and thereby proves he is not humble. It's an affection of something which he absolutely does not or obviously does not feel. You can't prove humility by telling people you're humble. So how do you recognize that you are and how do they recognize it? Well, let's talk about that. Here are some ways that you can know that you're humble. One of the things that you do is you don't complain no matter how hard it gets. Well, I know that everybody's convicted right now, aren't we? We're all convicted. I dare say that these past weeks have been filled with nothing but complaints. But we think, what is it that is the worst thing? What is the worst thing that could happen to anybody? Well, I would think that the worst thing is that a person would die and go to hell. I can't think of anything worse than that. There's nothing in life that's worse than eternity in hell. And yet every person on this planet is headed there. That is, every person listening to this sermon who is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ is on the way to hell. We're sinners and we are vile. We've already established our bankruptcy. We are undeserving of God's mercy. And yet he reached down and he pulled us out of the muck and mire of sin. We were sinking lower and lower into the pit of hell. But then God lifted us and he set our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I don't have to go where I deserve to go because God saved me. Grace and mercy, the grace and mercy of God, that's all that I can claim, and I deserve, deserve none of it. So if I deserve none of it, what do I have to complain about? Is bad a bad economy something to complain about? Is bad health, is that something to complain about? I'm certainly not saying that we ought to like it, but what's worse than going to hell? Anything bad that happens to a child of God is a far step up from hell. So what is there to complain about? And if I suffer for Christ, is that to be complained of? The scriptures don't say that God wants to make me rich, but they do say that it's given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And the Bible teaches that suffering is the badge of honor for Christ. Peter said, rejoice. 
because you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. You will be exceedingly joyful when Christ's glory is revealed. Now a humble person realizes where he was headed, but now where he is going. We are pressing in to the kingdom of God. I couldn't do that when I was dead in trespasses and sin, but I can now that I am alive to God. And I can't even boast of the faith that I have because God gave it to me. So what do I have to complain about? Now when people see in tough times, you don't complain, but you keep on praising God that you don't quit church, you don't blame God, you don't become disgusted with God, that's when they know you're a humble person. That's when they know you're a person who knows his place. You don't need to tell them because that doesn't work. They see it in you. Secondly, how do you recognize humility? Your attitude changes. What does that attitude change? You see the best in others, but the worst in you. You know how to be humble? When someone says something that you don't think was quite right, you think maybe that was directed to hurt me, but then you step back and you say, you know, I don't think that person really meant that. They must be having a bad day. I forgive them because I know they're a child of God and, and they, they don't really have any bad intentions towards me. Well, that person might have the worst intentions. But being a humble person is when you are bigger than they are because you're willing to be smaller than they are. You bear that reproach. You take it without retaliation. You turn the other cheek. You only see their best and you only see your worst. Now, I'm not, not talking about beating yourself into depression. I mean saying to yourself, but for the grace of God, there go I. I was a sinner. I was undeserving. If not for the grace of God, I would hurt everyone around me as much as I could. And that's Paul's meaning when he says, esteem others better than yourself. Thirdly, how do you recognize humility? Don't lower Christ's standards in order to raise yours. Now, that's what the Pharisees did. Now, we talk all the time about how the Pharisees were meticulous law keepers. And I don't mean that they kept God's laws because they didn't. If they did, they would have been righteous instead of unrighteous. But what they did was to keep their standards of the laws. They invented new laws as a hedge of protection around the laws of God. And I mean the laws that they invented were to show a person whether they kept God's law and whether they were approaching a breach of God's law. And so they invented laws to go around God's laws, laws that they could keep. Well, let me illustrate that for you. This is, this is the story that I've told you before about the elevator that, we, that was in the hotel that we stayed at in Jerusalem. On Saturday, that's the Sabbath, if you got on one certain elevator, the elevator stops on every floor. On every other day of the week, you had to push a button on your floor to get the elevator to stop. But on Saturday, you didn't have to push any buttons because that elevator was going to stop on every floor regardless. And what was the principle behind it? Well, if you pushed the button, you broke the Sabbath because pushing the button is work. And that's the exact idea of the New Testament Jews in Jesus' time. That's just the carryover from them. In order to protect themselves in order to build up themselves to be better than they really were they just lowered the standard because pushing buttons is a standard that you can keep 
And this is what so many Christians are guilty of. They set a standard. They set a standard for their looks, things like hair or clothing or a dozen other things. And it's a standard they can keep. And they think by keeping it, suddenly they've just become holy. And so they lower the standard because Christ's laws cannot be kept naturally. They must be kept supernaturally. Holiness is God's work, not ours. Sanctification is God's work, not ours. And so what am I saying? Do we then abandon all standards of decency and morality? Well, certainly not, because that would certainly be against God's law. Jesus never condemned the Pharisees for nitpicky tithing or for not pushing buttons on elevators, but he did. He did condemn their motives. What is their motive? Well, the law wasn't given to prove our godliness and our righteousness. The law was given to prove our ungodliness and unrighteousness and point us to the one who is godly and righteous, and that's Jesus Christ. We can't live to the standard because the standard is too high for us. It must be fulfilled in Christ and His righteousness must be applied to our hearts. You can't live self by bringing God down. God is immovable. God is perfection. God is the standard. And until you're ready to claim perfection, you're unready to be justified by keeping commandments. Now this is what being poor in spirit is about. It's about humility. And, and you'll recognize it only when you see that you are insufficient and Christ is fully enough. When you're humble, you stand back and you marvel at God's amazing grace. You are so little and He is so big. Well, let me close with this. The proud in spirit must become poor in spirit to inherit God's kingdom. Jesus didn't preach this message to everybody. He never expected that all people would be able to read the standards of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. This is for believers. Only believers will downgrade self and exalt Jesus Christ. The proud will always be proud until they're humbled under the mighty hand of God. Now today I know there are some listening that don't know Christ. I can help to identify who you are. Because you're thinking, oh, I'm a good person. I, I do things that are good. I try to do my best. And if that's what you think, you're self-deceived. You bought into the devil's lie that you're good enough to be right with God. That's pride. See, there is no such thing as God recognizing self-righteousness. You may do good things, but that's your judgment, not God's. God's judgment says there's none righteous, no, not one. God's judgment is that you are a condemned sinner. And Christ didn't come to condemn you. And I can't condemn you. You're already condemned according to John 3.18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now today, you must believe that Jesus Christ died... To pay your sin debt to God. That's the only way that you can be rid of eternal punishment. Only the poor in spirit. That is the beggarly poor. The destitute. The bankrupt. Those bankrupt of all self-righteousness and pride. Will inherit the kingdom of God. God resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Now the intent of this beatitude. Is to lay 
all of us prideful people flat on our face in the dust. We come to Christ destitute. We come bankrupt. We come in need of amazing grace. To recognize the magnificence of Christ is to recognize the unworthiness of me. Only by faith in Christ will any of us come to the realization of true humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've spent together in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would convict our hearts of our pride, convict our hearts of not recognizing that we are nothing in ourselves. We can only be what we should be by the grace of our God, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the way that we must come. Never, never talking about how good we are, what we can do for God, how valuable we would be in your service. The Lord to recognize there is no value until it has been established by the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. Bless our people today, Lord. We thank you for each and every one of them. We pray that you'll keep everyone safe. Uh, we pray, Lord, that it won't be long before we will be able to be back together, to meet as the church, to be in this place, all assembled in one place, to hear from the Word of God, to sing the songs, pray the prayers, and do all that we do here in worship of you. But in the meantime, Lord, we do thank you. Uh, for this opportunity that you've given us and the medium by which you've given us to speak to our people, that, that in itself is a, is a blessing that we, can't, we just can't uh, overestimate. So, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Be with us in this time. Bring us together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.